Hey, this is Miles Hunter. I'm the pastor of TC3 Students, and this is our podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today, and I hope this message helps you connect to the life-changing power of Jesus Christ and gives you the courage to live out your faith in your homes, schools, and community. Enjoy today's message. Well, hey, everybody. How you guys doing? Everybody okay? Who went to homecoming last night? Who had homecoming last night? My, all my PSL kids had homecoming last night. Everybody uh, give a round of applause for them because they made it here because I don't know if I would come to church after homecoming. I just, I just don't know. Uh, hey, guys, we're going to wrap up this Stranger Things series. Uh, are you guys finally excited that it's over? Anybody? No. <laughs> somebody, said, somebody said yes loud and, loud and clear down here. You're, you're rude. You're really rude. Hey, uh, we're, we're going to talk... We're going to talk tonight as we wrap up this series. If you don't know, if you're coming into this thing with, with fresh and new eyes, we've been talking about this, this battle, this battle that wages war against us every single day that you and I cannot see with our physical eyes. And, and why we've called it Stranger Things is because it's literally like, it's the upside down. It's the, other, it's the other side in which we cannot see, but it affects our every single day reality. The Bible declares it that it is, a, it is a spiritual battle. The Bible says in Ephesians 6 that we do not fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against demons and rulers and principalities of the unseen world. It says that we fight against spiritual beings. Our battle is not physical, it is spiritual, aka people are not our problem. And so we've been going throughout this series recognizing how the enemy, as, as we know him as, as Satan, the accuser, right, our, our adversary, our enemy, the devil, how he attacks. We've been learning about his schemes, how he comes at us, and how Jesus, with his death, burial, and resurrection, has given us, has given us not just a defense to the schemes of the enemy, but has already given us victory over the enemy. And we've, whoa, and we've learned about how to, how to walk in that victory and how to equip and arm ourselves to walk in victory. And so tonight we're going to talk about the last, the last piece of armor that God calls us to put on and about the last scheme that the enemy tries to use. But, but again, we're going to use this, uh, this Stranger Things concept. So I think about, uh, I think about Max a lot. Right, and, and to be honest, I, I feel like Max sometimes because Max, after her brother died, what happened to her was not just that she was attacked mentally, not that she was just attacked physically, but like, but there was something else in there because Max, Max wanted to give up. The whole, the whole point of like the song of like the running up the hill song, the whole point that that song even, even has in the story is because Max is in like Vecna's, the enemy's like grasp and he has her ultimately because she decided that she no longer wanted to fight. The enemy attacked her will, her desire to fight against him. And that's the last scheme of the enemy is that he tries to rule over our life and destroy our will to fight. He wants to take away our will. He is Satan, the ruler. His target is our will, and it's the desire to fight. We see it firsthand in Max's story, and Satan's goal is always to get to the will and then control the will, to control your desire to even fight. 
And so he, he may begin by deceiving the mind. Sam, again, the scene of the crime is your... Right, great, fantastic. Somebody else did it. The scene of the crime is your... So he may begin by deceiving our mind, which we talked about in week one, or he may attack us physically through suffering, but ultimately, ultimately the enemy wants to get to our will. And we can't underestimate the importance of the will in the Christian life that we live. And so if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, know that this is important. And too many followers of Jesus, too many of us have different types of religion within this, this thing that we call Christianity. We have, we have this intellectual religion, which is a religion that satisfies the mind, meaning that we know God, but it never really changes our life. We know who God is. We can even quote back some scripture. We can even say John 3, 16 and so on and so forth. We have a knowledge of who God is, but it has yet to change our life. The most Christian thing about us is on our Instagram story or on our Instagram bio, but really snap tells the truth about our life. We post and repost trust God bro memes to our story all the time, but genuinely that's the only Christian aspect about our life. And then there's this emotional religion. It's made up of feelings. It's unless I feel good or unless I feel God or I'm on this emotional high, I feel like God has forgotten me if I don't feel him. I stop reading my Bible. I stop praying because I don't feel like it. I don't feel Jesus, so I'm not going to engage Jesus. I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't always feel like reading the text of scripture. I don't, I don't know which one do I wanna to read today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. I don't care. Like, there's not always a feeling of doing so. But here's the thing, guys. Out of, out of emotional and out of intellectual religion, God wants full surrender. He wants both parts. He wants an intelligent mind. He wants a sincere heart and he wants an obedient will. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your mind. And so a true follower of Jesus, they pray whether they feel like it or not. We spend time in God's word, whether we feel like it or not. It's called spiritual willpower. And our will helps determine our character. Hear that again. Our will helps determine our character. Sometimes you're going to have to do things that you don't want to do. It determines your character. It also determines who and what we worship. And so get this, Satan wants us to worship and serve him. He wants our will to be submitted to his will. And so we are made to worship. Know that, like you and I are made to worship. Worship, as we talked about earlier, is just obedience. Like we are going to obey something. And so even if we're doing our own thing, we need to understand that that's what the enemy wants. Even if we choose and say, you know what, God, I know your law and I know what you've called me to do, but I'm choosing to do my own thing. And, and, and that's not sin. I'm not worshiping the enemy. If I choose to do my own thing, understand that that's what the enemy wants. When we choose to worship ourselves, when we choose us, when we choose me, we choose to worship the enemy. You want to know what the mantra of the church of Satan is? It's literally do what thou wilt. Do what you want to do is the mantra of the church of Satan. 
He wants to rule over us and he wants us to think that we worshiping ourselves and doing what we want to do is not worshiping him. He wants us to worship him blindly. That's okay. And in order to do this, in order, in order to rule over us, Satan uses our pride to do this. And Satan's, Satan's main weapon is our pride. Pride, Psalms 10, 4 explains it this way. It says, the proud are so consumed with themselves that their thoughts are far from God, aka like you don't take God into account at all. And that's what we see as we get to the story of David in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Anybody know about King David? Anybody? No, nobody knows about King David. All right, somebody tell me King David's like greatest sin. Anybody? He had an affair. Yeah, 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 yeah. Bathsheba, right? Like he, he sees this woman from the top of, from the top of uh, his mansion and, uh, and he looks at her. She's somebody else's wife. He's like, oh my gosh, that girl's bad. I'm gonna sleep with her. And he sleeps with her. He sleeps with her. And then he has her husband killed, like on the battlefield like tries to bring her husband home so that he would sleep with her and he doesn't. And so he sends him to the front of the lines to have her husband killed, right? And so David like kills her husband and then his son dies as a result too. So David kills like two people in the process. And I'm actually pretty sure that a couple more died as well. So most people consider that to be like David's greatest, greatest sin. I'm here to tell you it's not, terrifyingly so. It's not David's greatest sin. That sin killed like two to four people. He also had a sin that killed 70,000 people. And that's the one that we're gonna talk about today because this, this act of disobedience to God is the act of, of pride in David's life. And as a result, 70,000 people were killed. David, this, this king, this wonderful king had just come off kind of a, a high, right? He had been defeating different armies. He literally like defeated the greatest king of all time and chopped his head off and took his crown and put the king's crown on his head. And David, David is doing his thing. God has blessed David's kingdom immensely. And David has everything that he could ever want. But Satan allowed David's victories to inflate his ego. Anybody ever experienced that? You're doing really, really well in school, in sports, in life with the girl, with the guy, whatever it may be. Everything is going the right way. And somewhere along the way, your ego gets inflated to the point where you can't even walk through a normal sized door. If you don't know what ego stands for, it stands for edging God out. And so David's greatest sin, the responsibility of, of killing 70,000 people, it shows his pride and pride ultimately glorifies man and robs God of the glory that only he deserves. And we see this story after David had experienced all of these victories and Satan attacking David. In 1 Chronicles 21, verses 1 through 2, it says this, Satan rose up against Israel and called David to take a census of the people of Israel. And so David said to Joab, the commanders of the army, take a census of all the people of Israel. From Beersheba in the south to Dan in the north and bring me a report so that I may know how many are there. And then going on in 1 Chronicles 21, seven through eight, it says, God was very displeased with the census and he punished Israel for it. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by taking this census. Please forgive my guilt for doing this foolish thing. Going down to verse 14. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel and 70,000 people died as a result. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem, but just as the angel was preparing to destroy it, 
the Lord relented and said to the deaf angel, stop, that is enough. And at that moment, the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of the Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with his sword drawn, reaching over Jerusalem. And so David and the leaders of Israel put on burlap to show their deep distress and fell face down on the ground. And David said to God, I am the one who called for the census. I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. But these people are as innocent as sheep. What have they done? Oh, my Lord, your God, let your anger fall against me and my family, but do not destroy your people. And so this census annual, like he was, he was taking a, 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 a example, right? So he was counting the people that were his and all of Israel. He was like, how many, how many people do you have? And it's like, what was wrong with David taking a census? Why in the world did God kill 70,000 people? Why was God so angry? Well, Moses commanded the first census back in Exodus. So like we're all the way in like in Chronicles. Back in Exodus, Moses commanded the first census, but it was a reminder to the nation of Israel that the nation of Israel had been purchased by God. God was the one that rescued them out of Egypt. God was the one that had given them a land of milk and honey. God was the one that had brought, bought their freedom. And so as Moses took the first census, Moses went around to every person that was 20 years old as a male or older, and he would take a coin from them. And it was their like tribute, their offering to God. God, thank you for rescuing us from the hands of the Egyptians. And when David took his census, he did it for his own glory. He just wanted to know how many soldiers do I have? He didn't even take an offering for the Lord. He just took a census for his own pride. Hey, we've done so great. We've done so well. We've killed so many kings. We've conquered so many kingdoms. How can I inflate my pride even more? You know what? Oh my gosh, let's take a census. Let's find out how many males that we have that can fight. And so David does this to honor himself. He did it for his own glory and not the glory of the Lord. And so I ask, what are we doing for our own glory? What are we doing without putting, putting God first? What are, we, what are we doing in our life where we're saying, this is for Jesus, but really it's not at all. What are we doing for ourselves as David did? See, Satan's purpose in all of it is to make us independent of God's will. The whole point of sin is us seeking to be independent of God. Sin is us telling God, I got this. I can do this on my own. I don't need you. I don't need your advice. I don't need you to answer the question that I have about whether or not I should date this girl or date this guy or be on this team or serve in this way. God, I don't need you. I'm going to act on my own. I got this. And if Satan can get us to act and think independently of God's will, then he can control our will. In turn, he can control our life. And so we were, again, made to worship. We were made to obey. So we are going to obey something. Romans 6.16 literally says you can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. You have two options. There's not a third. We can choose to be a slave to sin or we can be a slave to righteousness, to obedience, to obey God, to have a fruitful life. Or we can choose to obey the enemy and be a slave to sin. 
Pride means that we act independently of God or worse yet, that we try to use God to accomplish tasks for our own selfish purpose. And so the question is, what is our defense? Our defense is the spirit of God that lives in us for those of us that have said yes to Jesus. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 says, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. AKA only the Holy Spirit of God working in us can control our will and help us to please God. We can't do it. Every time we try to act on our own will, every time we try to do something on our own without asking for God's assistance, we fail to please him because we are broken and messed up people. We don't wanna please God. I don't wanna please God. Only the Holy Spirit of God that lives in us can please God, can act to please God, can love our neighbor in the way that God wants us to love our neighbor, can be obedient to our parents the way that they need us to be obedient to them. You and I cannot do that on our own without Jesus's help. And so Satan's number one weapon is pride, but God's number one defense is humility, guys. What are the results that God is working out in us? Well, Ephesians 2 tells us God saved us by his grace when we believed in him. And we can't take credit for that. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done so that none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he has planned for us long Ago. And so that tells us three things, that salvation is the work that God has done for us. We can't do it. Sanctification is the work that God does in us. And then service is the work that God does through us. I'll say that again. Salvation is the work that God has done for us and his son, Jesus. Sanctification is the work that God does in us every single day. That work will never be done until you are with God in heaven in glory. And service is the work that God does through you by the power of his Holy Spirit that lives in you. And so God works in us through his Holy Spirit. And so the question is, what, what, what must we do to activate the Holy Spirit? You ever seen that meme, Holy Spirit activate that, that lady? No, you never seen that? It blows my mind every single time I see it. I'm like, this lady pulled this out. Uh, so what must we do to activate the Holy Spirit of God to work in us? Romans 12, 1 tells us this. Paul says, and so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. AKA, we have to fully surrender. The band's gonna come up and, and play one last song, but I, I need you guys to understand this, right? Full surrender means this. I, uh, I lived, uh, I'll never forget the house that we lived in in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 2716 Woodrow Avenue. And, uh, and my parents, when I was eight years old, uh, my brothers and sisters were all older than me. So I had five older siblings and I have one that's, one that's younger now. She's like 15 years old and she's in high school and she could beat up, I swear, like almost any boy that I know. Um, she's a monster. So we lived in this house together and my parents sat us down in the living room and they looked at all of us as I'm eight, mind you, 
And they said one night after football practice, super late, we had all eaten and we're sitting down in the living room in like these U-shaped couches, kind of like the ones that Janae and I have at our house right now. And they looked at us and they said, hey, uh, we love you guys, but we're poor and we don't have the money to send you to school. So if you wanna go to school, you better get good at something really quickly. And so we all did, we all got good at, at some sort of sport. My sister, Sydney, like was the oddball out. She sang opera, she's pretty cool. Uh, but like all of us got, got good at something. But I remember in order to allow us to fulfill that dream, they said, hey, like we want reminders around you about what it is that you're chasing after every single day. So we all, we all got to paint our rooms the different colors that we wanted to paint them. Uh, my room was painted green, green and orange because I was a huge Miami Hurricanes fan uh, back then. And, uh, and Ken Dorsey was like on the cover of NCAA football when Miami had like just won the national championship. Nobody cares, whatever. Uh, and so, uh, and so we all got to do that. But I remember that house distinctly because I remember always fighting with my brothers. I remember like my brothers and I like tearing down uh, the closet doors fighting. I remember putting like holes in the walls fighting. I remember like my brother, uh, we were outside like throwing the football. He was like, Miles, I bet you can't hit the mailbox. And I was like, I bet. And I threw the football and chucked it and boom, the mailbox came down. I was like, oh, that's dope, that's dope. I'm in trouble. And so, uh, I remember like all of that and all of that was a problem like with my parents. It was a real like it was a real issue. We got in trouble. We got beatings out the wazoo. It was crazy. Uh, I remember all of that. But I also remember that even though it was a problem, it wasn't a big deal because my parents owned that house. They owned the house. And so like we could genuinely like do whatever we wanted with that house. We could paint the colors that we wanted. We could put holes in the walls. We could knock down mailboxes, even though it's a federal offense. We could do all of that stuff. And like, and it wasn't that big of a deal. Why? Because my parents owned the house. But then the recession came in 2008 and, and we lost the house. Like my stepdad like lost his job. My mom's job like couldn't hold us over enough. And so like we had to sell the house. So we had to paint over all of the paint colors in the room. We had to fix up everything in that house. And we had to move into a house that we rented. And in that house, we couldn't do everything that we wanted to do because my parents didn't own that house. Here's the thing about full surrender to God. Most of us have said yes to Jesus. And instead of him being an owner of the house, being able to paint the walls, whatever color he wants to, being able to, to open up whatever door that he needs to so that he can access that chamber of your heart to make your heart more like his, we've only allowed God to rent. He can't change the colors of the walls. He wants to own this house. And he wants you to allow him to have full ownership, to have access to every room, to be able to go wherever he wants to allow his Holy Spirit to speak into any and every situation in every area of your life. God wants to be the owner and not just a renter. And so like, I don't, I don't know where you're at. Maybe you're a kid in this room tonight and you're like, God has no ownership of this house. God doesn't own it at all, but I want him to. 
Well, that's a simple prayer and I'd love you to do that. Maybe you're a kid in this room and, and, and ownership for you means like, man, like I don't, I don't really want to get baptized, but I know that like I've said, Jesus, I accept what it is that you did for me on the cross. And I have yet to take that step of obedience because you don't own that area of my life. Maybe that step for you is to walk into the waters of baptism. And, and to be honest with you, it's super easy, super easy. You can sign up outside. You can walk into the waters of baptism on November 13th. You can get dunked in the waters and you can show an outward sign of your profession of faith of what's already happened inwardly. That's all that is. It's telling the world what's already happened in here. And so like we want to be a group, want to be a people that God owns this house. God isn't just the renter anymore. And so like, if God needs to own your house and you know that you are just allowing him to rent, I'm just gonna ask everybody to close their eyes right now. And if you know God needs to own your house, I'm gonna ask you to be bold. I'm gonna ask you to put both hands up. And this, this isn't just for people that, that are new followers of Jesus. This is for followers of Jesus that you know God is renting right now. Put them up high, don't be ashamed about it. And I'm gonna ask you to pray this prayer with me with your hands held up high, just pray this prayer with me. Father, man, say it like you mean it. Father, would you own this house? I give you access to every room in my life. And if there is any room that's locked, I ask Holy Spirit that you would knock on it and I would open and that you'd be the owner of this house. Jesus, we thank you so much for who you are. God, we thank you that you love us enough to pursue us because you want to own this house. You, God, I trust and believe can do better with our homes than we can do. You have more beautiful pictures to paint than we could ever paint in our own rooms. God, I pray that the enemy would not be able to use pride to stand up against us, Jesus, but that your humility would be so much greater that lives inside of us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.